We want to be much more inclusive in who gets to be a part of these missions with NASA. So our team with the Europa Lander is kind of trying to break that mold that NASA traditionally has, where it's a bunch of physicists and geologists. I want biologists and chemists engaged. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. We were stuck on the bottom. Batteries were running low. Our air was running out. We had no way to communicate with the other submersible or with the team on the boat some 10,000 feet above us. We were nestled in a metal sphere, perched on some rocks at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. This was my first trip to the ocean floor, and it had the makings to be my last. The year was 2003, and I was in the midst of my PhD studying the physics and chemistry of Europa, Jupiter's ice-covered moon, when I got a phone call. James Cameron, filmmaker of Titanic and many other successful movies, was looking for a young scientist to talk about Europa while exploring the depths of our oceans. And that's how Kevin Han, my guest on the SIDCast today, describes one of his first very formidable experiences in his life. I got to know Kevin just a little bit through Dartmouth Connections. He's fascinating. He's a uh, astrobiologist, which, you know, I had to look it up to know exactly what that was. Astrobiology is the study of the origin, evolution, and life in the universe. And he's involved now with the Europa Lander mission, which is currently in pre-phase A development, which is to say it's going to take a long time until this actually happens. And the mission is to send a rocket ship out to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, and to land on that moon and to conduct experiments. Why Europa? Why so important? Because, well, because there's water there, lots and lots of water. And the reason why we care about water is because it's highly likely that water is going to be the way in which life will form in any other planet or moon or environment. I mean, that's what this guy does. That's what Kevin Hand does. That's been his work. Uh, he's been part of this for years. He's testified to Congress to try to get Congress to support some of these uh, activities. And he's made at least nine dives to the bottom of the ocean. And this is also interesting. You know, why the ocean when you're going to Europa? Well, because... The bottom of the ocean creates an environment of tremendous darkness and cold and unusual creatures, if you will, uh, so that it may very well resemble what life, if it exists, might look like in some very, very simple form if we're one day able to go to uh, Europa and drill down through the ice that surrounds uh, Europa to get to the water uh, underneath. He's been to Antarctica as well, and he has a book that I'm just beginning to read that's really fascinating that talks about you know what I just said right at the beginning about his expedition with James Cameron. It's called Alien Oceans, uh, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space, and just came out actually in April of uh, 2020. And so, you know, this is uh, unusual. I like to have some scientists on. I know so little about science, it's kind of embarrassing, but Kevin is the type of person, and the book that I just mentioned, Alien Oceans, is written for a wide audience. He's the type of person that can explain really, really complicated concepts. 
and ideas in ways that most of us can understand. I mean, even I can understand. He is a planetary scientist and astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where he directs the Ocean Worlds Lab. His research focuses on the origin, evolution, and distribution of life, as I mentioned, in the solar system, with an emphasis on moons of the outer solar system that likely harbor these liquid water oceans. He's a pre-project scientist for the NASA's Europa Lander Mission, and he was co-chair of the Europa Lander Science Definition Team. Previously, he served as the Deputy Chief Scientist for Solar System Exploration at the Jet Propulsion Labs at Caltech. And his fieldwork has taken him not just to the Arctic and the Antarctic and the depths of the Earth's oceans, but the glaciers of Kilimanjaro and to Mount Kenya and the desert of uh, Namibia. His book, as I mentioned, was just published in April of 2020. And this is just one of those episodes of the SIDCAST where I get out of my comfort zone to talk to someone who just is really interesting, has done some amazing things, and has a day job that is really hard to fathom. You know, when your day job is about trying to figure out how you can, first of all, get approval and the money to send a um, rocket to a moon of Jupiter with a lander that will enable you to do experiments and to send back data. Now, what might be found there would be among the most important and exciting discoveries ever. If this research and this mission actually were to find some form of life in the waters of Europa, this could take 50 years to get all this done and maybe longer. And it takes some type of personality to be so passionate and excited and energized and motivated and dedicated to trying to get something done when the timeline is maybe 50 years before we can really know for sure what's going on, but maybe even sooner. We'll see. Dr. Kevin Hand, a great guest for the SIDCAST. Let's begin our conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Kevin Hand. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Sid. Pleasure to be here. And where are you calling in for our chat today? I am calling in from Eagle Rock, California, which is part of Los Angeles. So I'm in Southern California, where the uh, fires have abated a little bit, but it's, uh, it's still kind of apocalyptic out here. I know. And you have, as we were chatting before we started the recording, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire roots, and uh, you went to Dartmouth, so you know exactly what it looks like here in the fall, um, yeah. which is quite pretty, I must say. <laughs> we were back east for much of the summer, and my heart is still there. And you know, actually, you got plenty going for you in Southern California when it comes to weather, I have to say that. I lived in L.A. a long time ago for six years, and I remember the old joke, you know, when the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day mm-hmm. football game was on, uh, that that was the one thing that brought more people from the Midwest and the East right. California, because you'd see, you know, 70 degrees, sunny, gorgeous, January 1st. Meanwhile, you're shoveling snow back here and all the rest. <laughs> uh, the, the irony for me is that I love cold weather. I love snow. I love ice. I study these things. So That's funny. You're right. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So let's start with what it is you do. So the field is astrobiology, right? Mm-hmm. And planetary science uh, coupled together. And, okay. Yeah. Could you tell us what let's say, astrobiology is in the first place. Yeah, it's simply put, astrobiology is the study of the living universe. And within that phrase is encompassed the search for life beyond Earth, but also the study of Earth's biosphere and the past, present, and future of that biosphere. So trying to understand the origin of life, how life has interacted with Earth and changed our planet and how our planet has changed life. 
And so uh, it's really quite encompassing, but uh, I think it is captured well in that statement of astrobiology is the study of the living universe. Is it a field that's been around for a long time? In various permutations, Sid, there's been exobiology, astrobiology, cosmobiology, all of these variations on uh, Latin and Greek roots um, <laughs> at some level uh, really just capture the fact that mm-hmm. for decades, centuries, even millennia, we humans have been asking this question of whether or not we're alone, whether or not life exists in the stars above and what our own origins actually are. It's the biology part that I find interesting. So astronomy as a field has been around a long time. And that's not necessarily the same thing, though, is it? Because it doesn't have the life origins. Right. And astronomy, you can largely think of as uh, physics adjacent. And that, um, (laughs) uh, for the most part, as was my case uh, at Dartmouth, I studied physics and I got a minor in astronomy. Uh, Also got a major in psychology, but that's a different story that's somewhat related to the search for life. But astronomy Mm -hmm. classically is a mechanism whereby to study the physics and chemistry of the universe. Got it. So the question you're trying to answer, fundamental question you're trying to answer, is it, is there life somewhere else besides Earth? Fundamentally, the question is, does biology work beyond Earth? Now, that sounds like a simple statement, but um, coming back to the history of various sciences, let me frame it this way. Think about Galileo, speaking of astronomy. When Galileo discovered the moons of Jupiter, when he discovered the, the crescent of Venus and the mountains on the moon, he helped put the final nail in the coffin of Aristotelian cosmology and really opened the doorway to the Copernican revolution. This, this revelation that, of course, the earth goes around the sun, the sun is a star, and the stars that we see in the night sky could be suns to their own planets. And so with that, we came to learn that physics works beyond earth. And then in the decades and centuries that would follow with the advent of spectroscopy and other tools, we would come to appreciate that the principles of chemistry work beyond Earth. And then with the advent of the space age and our robotic exploration of the moon and Mercury and Venus and Mars, we would come to appreciate that the principles of geology work beyond Earth. But that fourth fundamental science, biology, when you think about the fundamental sciences, it really is physics, chemistry, geology, and biology. When it comes to that fourth fundamental science, we don't yet really know whether biology works beyond Earth in that we don't necessarily know whether or not the origin of life on Earth is some sort of biological singularity that occurred once in the universe and took some cascade of very improbable events, or if we live in a biological universe, a universe in which biology works anywhere and everywhere and is just kind of a layer on top of physics, chemistry, and geology. So really at the heart of it, I'm curious about whether or not biology works and what kind of diversity there is potentially in our universe. Is there a periodic table of life or an analog to the periodic table for various life forms in our universe. So this is something that I've been curious about when I read about some of the explorations or watch sci-fi movies and some of Steven Spielberg, and the E.T. characters are humanoid. (laughs) Right. But is that really part of this question you just asked, which is, is it necessary? Is it required that they have so much similar biology, or could they look completely, utterly different, not even like a bacteria 
or a virus might look under the microscope. Right. And so let, let me be um, uh, absolutely clear. When when I talk about the search for life beyond Earth, and for the most part, when anybody in my field talks about the search for life beyond Earth, we're talking about the search for even the simplest of life, single-celled uh, microbes. And such a discovery would be truly revolutionary. Now, when we look at life on Earth, uh, from the most extreme of microbe to the most extreme of human being, we're all connected by the same tree of life. We're all connected by the biochemistry of DNA, RNA, proteins, and ATP. And so were we to discover a microbe within the ocean of Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon Enceladus or surface of Saturn's moon Titan, one of the first questions that we would want to know is what is that biochemistry? Does it work on DNA or is there some other game in town to get the business of life done. Now, when it comes to uh, how aliens are portrayed and humanoid figures and then little gray, large-headed figures, I would certainly love for that to be the case. And my job would be a lot easier if they would just come here and let us know they're out there. Um, but uh, but that's not happened. And, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is kind of a higher order endeavor. One of the nice things about the robotic exploration of our solar system is that we can proactively go out and do these experiments. We can send robotic spacecraft to worlds like Jupiter's moon Europa, and we can do the experiments and actively search for life. So the fate of the search, to some extent, is in our hands, whereas some of these other things, you just kind of have to look around and wait. Is the pace of development, technology development of rockets and other technology that allows these probes to go to uh, Jupiter or Mars or anywhere else, in terms of the physics of it, can they go faster? Is there a method to, potentially, or is there some limitation because of the physics of the solar system. Yeah, there's um, there's really no way around what we call the rocket equation. And the rocket equation basically tells you that the more mass you want to get to someplace, the more fuel you need to bring in order to launch it and get it to that place. And the more fuel that you need to bring to get something to someplace, the more fuel you need to bring to get the fuel to that place. And so oftentimes within NASA and within this kind of exploration, we cite the tyranny of the rocket equation, the challenges that the rocket equation poses for us in terms of getting someplace fast with a lot of a lot of mass. Now, there are some some new things, some relatively new things that are coming online. Uh, new rockets, obviously, the commercial sector is expanding rapidly. Obviously, everyone's probably seen the astonishing landings with the retro rockets that SpaceX has pulled off. But at the end of the day, those are chemical rockets. There are rockets that utilize what's called solar electric propulsion, and that's a good way to kind of get around the solar system. But we have yet to invent warp drive. We have yet to <laughs> to uh, uh, negotiate wormholes within the fabric of space-time that allow us to jump from one place to the other quite quickly. I would love that. Uh, but as it stands, it takes us anywhere from about four to seven years just to get out to Jupiter, depending on what kind of pinball path you take throughout the inner solar system to eventually get slingshotted out to Jupiter. Wow. So... Were you, as a kid, really interested in all this? Were you look out at the sky and have your own little telescope? Is this something that was in you right from the beginning? Yeah, yeah. I feel uh, very fortunate. I grew up in the small town of Manchester, Vermont, back in the 70s and 80s, and wonderful neighborhood. And, and we would just get kicked out of the house and go explore the forest all day long and then come back as the sun was setting. 
just growing up under that clear night sky that you obviously know so well being there in in Hanover, Mm -hmm. camping out and just looking up. I was captivated at a very early age by this question of whether or not we are alone. I read a lot of Carl Sagan books and watched Cosmos. My friends and I used to build model rockets and launch them uh, with the hope that we could get them into space. It was a wonderful place to grow up and an incredibly nurturing environment for my curiosity. So I feel very fortunate that I got hooked on this question of, are we alone at a, a very young age? Yeah, right. When you went to Dartmouth, did you come to Dartmouth to study science and physics and planetary uh, issues or or you didn't know? Do you want me to be completely honest here? <laughs> I like I like honesty. Yes, it's always good. I, someone told me it's the best policy. Yeah. I love Dartmouth, but the, the first visit, honestly, um, you know, I went on the tour and the tour, to put it bluntly, emphasized too much of like the Greek life and, and all of that. And that just wasn't really my cup of tea. And meanwhile, I had been very excited about going to Cornell because, of course, Carl Sagan was there and I had dreams of working with him. But when I went out to Cornell and went to the physics department there, one of the professors burst my bubble and said, you're never going to get a chance to work with Carl Sagan. You'll be lucky if you even see him. And then my English teacher in high school, who I often cite as one of my most important science teachers, he recommended that I give Dartmouth another look. And so I went back up on my own and this time just sort of walked around campus and had a wonderful conversation with a visiting professor in the physics department who was very patient and entertained all of my naive, precocious questions about relativity and quantum mechanics. And so I fell in love with the physics department on that visit. Coupled with that, I made my way over to Robinson Hall, which I think is still the Dartmouth Outing Club headquarters, right? That hasn't changed. No, I'm not even sure because there's a lot of changes. <laughs> right. there, yeah. So I think Robinson Hall is, is still uh, the Outing Club and Mountaineering Club home. That's where, the, that's where all the kids are out dressed funny. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And, uh, the trips that they used to take pre-COVID. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I uh, meandered over there on that visit and had a wonderful conversation with a number of skiers and climbers and just outdoorsy derelicts and decided that Dartmouth was a good place to go. Go back to that English teacher. What were you saying about her? He was an incredible English teacher, kind of straight out of that mold of, um, goodness, the Robin Williams movie. Dead poet. Yes, thank you for reading my mind. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Bob and Bev Leslie were teachers in my high school and Bev was an incredible math teacher and she definitely uh, helped seed my curiosity in math. But Bob had us uh, reading all sorts of wonderful literature and also doing a lot of writing. And as I tell students that I mentor, if you can't write, you can't do science because at the end of the day, we have to publish or perish. And in particular, you need to know how to communicate your scientific argument. And so that's not to say that writing is the most important thing, but it is an incredibly important skill. That's really great that you said that because I know from talking to scientists and just kind of being alert to it, communication and scientific discovery do not necessarily go hand in hand, especially verbal communication. And there's been an effort here at Dartmouth and other places, and the actor Alan Alda has actually funded a whole series of, uh, do you know about that? Yeah, I don't, but Alan Alda is wonderful, uh, in particular, on science communication. That's right. And so he funded training for, I think, PhD students and junior faculty, if they were interested as well, on how to communicate their ideas better to a lay public. Oh, um, specifically at much, Dartmouth? He was here at Dartmouth, but I think he started a whole center, maybe in Stony Brook or somewhere else, 
And this has become one of his passions oh, in the great. last uh, 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, what you just said really resonates. But you talked about writing, not just verbally communicating, which uh, obviously is something pretty important to you because you wrote a book for a wider audience very recently, didn't you? I, I did. Uh, it's Alien Oceans, uh, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. And it came out uh, after working on it for many, many years. It was released on April 7th, 2020. And uh, guess what was happening around that time? Yeah, you didn't go on too many tours other than Zoom tours to talk about That's it, right. I guess. So why did you write the book? You have a pretty busy schedule. Uh, we even get to some of your explorations and responsibilities for NASA and other things. But this is a book that's not an academic publication. It's a book for a wider audience. That's right. And I wrote the book for the college age me. When I was in college, I would have loved a book like this. Now, when I was at Dartmouth in the uh, mid to late 90s, that's the time frame when the Galileo spacecraft was just starting to make some of these discoveries about Jupiter's moon, Europa, having most likely a subsurface liquid water ocean. And so this book could not have existed back then. But fast forward to a number of years ago, and I've, I've been writing it for a long time, and, and I love science history. And in the book, I go into some details on how spectroscopy came to be and various space missions, etc. In particular, I found that when it came to the search for life, there were many popular science books on Mars, many popular science books on extrasolar planets, but there was not really an accessible yet still challenging popular science book that covered the topic of these oceans that exist beyond Earth and the prospect of discovering extant living life within those oceans. And coupled with that, I also wanted to connect that exploration back to the exploration of our own ocean and the importance of that endeavor and all the discoveries yet to be made here on Earth. Right. And you write about that in some of your own work. I'll ask you in a moment about the expedition with James Cameron, which is pretty cool from years ago. But so you said something that's well known for you and your community, but not so well known to most other people, including me, until I started reading a bit about this, which is that there are oceans out there on moons, so Europa being one of the most famous, that are under the surface of that planet. And if they're an ocean, that's a pretty good place to look for life. Is that that's, a good way to... That's a good summary. <laughs> that's right. So <laughs> how do we know? You said Galileo discovered, uh, not Galileo, but the Galileo explorers discovered. How do we know such a thing? Right. So... Um, First and foremost, if we've learned anything from Earth's biosphere, it's that where you find the liquid water, you generally find life. And so when it comes to the search for life beyond Earth, the uh, canary in the coal mine is look for water. And you and, and most listeners have probably seen reports on finding water on Mars, water in the form of ice, and the importance of that to the search for life on Mars. Well, it turns out, and as I'll get into in a minute with respect to the explanation, it turns out that we now have good reason to predict that at least six moons of the outer solar system likely harbor liquid water oceans beneath their icy surfaces. And so let me uh, use Europa as an example. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. It's about the size of our moon. It's covered in ice. It has no atmosphere. And beneath its icy shell, it has an ocean that is approximately 100 kilometers in thickness, or roughly 60 miles in thickness. That is about 10 times the deepest region in our own ocean, the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench comes in at 11 kilometers depth or, or seven miles. 
And so Europa's global ocean, if you do the math, it contains about two to three times the volume of all the liquid water found here in Earth's oceans. So then the question becomes, how did we discover it? And how could these oceans exist that far out in the solar system? Well, with respect to the second part of that, usually when we think about liquid water and oceans, we think about energy from the sun, energy from your parent star, and being at just the right distance from your parent star so as to maintain liquid water on the surface of the planet. And that, of course, is the case with the Earth. And so with Earth-like planets, there's this notion of a traditional habitable zone, a kind of Goldilocks region, where if you're just the right distance from the star, you can maintain liquid water on the surface. If you're too close, like Venus, you're too hot, you boil off any water. If you're too far away, like Mars, you're too cold and you freeze out water. Now, the story of Venus, Earth, and Mars is more complex than I've just stated, but um, nevertheless, you get the Goldilocks analogy there. With worlds like Europa and Enceladus and, and other moons of the outer solar system, there's a new Goldilocks in town. It's a Goldilocks where the energy for maintaining and sustaining liquid water comes not from your parent star, but rather from tidal energy dissipation. As Europa goes around Jupiter, which is some 318 times as massive as the Earth, Europa is getting tugged and pulled and stretched by the tidal flexing. And that creates mechanical distortions in the interior. That mechanical distortion creates friction. That friction creates heat. You have a lot of internal heating arising from tidal dissipation. And that heat is what maintains the liquid water ocean. And so it's a totally new Goldilocks where tidal dissipation is maintaining the oceans in the deepest reaches of our solar system, not solar power. How did the water get there in the first place? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Here, I like to make the analogy of our solar system to a campfire. If you sit too close to a campfire, you're going to get dehydrated. You're going to get too hot. And that's kind of the scenario with Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. These inner rocky planets are actually kind of bad places for life. The formation of the solar system during that early kind of epoch a lot of the water molecules and other volatiles like methane and sulfide, etc., they were kind of baked out into the outer regions of the solar system where it eventually got cold enough that they couldn't condense into ices. And so really, it kind of flips things on its head. The outer solar system is where we expect to see a lot of water and other volatile compounds condensed out. So the outer solar system is full of water. Really, the question is, how the heck is Earth so wet? And we actually don't really know the answer to that question. We think that comets may have delivered much of Earth's water. There are a lot of experiments, a lot of studies going on trying to figure out, could the kind of degassing of hydrated materials in the rocks of early Earth have supplied all of the water? It's an outstanding question, both outstanding in the extraordinary way, but also outstanding in that it has yet to be solved. Wow. So we are the kind of wonder here, how it worked out that there's water on the surface. That's right. That enables us to survive. And That's right. Wow. That's very interesting. So how thick is the ice uh, when you go back to Europa? What are we talking about? Compared to a lot of the other ice-covered alien ocean worlds of the outer solar system, Europa's ice shell is quite thin. And by that, I mean it's somewhere in the range of roughly 10 kilometers in thickness or six miles. Now, some of my colleagues will argue that, oh, I think it's 30 kilometers based on these models. 
Others will say, I think it's four kilometers based on this evidence. And so there's quite a bit of debate within our relatively small community. But the ice shell is somewhere in that range of perhaps Mm -hmm. 10 or so kilometers in thickness. Now, to give that a frame of reference, Mm -hmm. the Antarctic ice sheet at its thickest point is about four kilometers in thickness. And so there may be regions on Europa that are comparable in thickness to the thickness of the Antarctic ice sheet. So what's the plan here? How are you going to get to that water? I know there's a Europa Clipper that's scheduled to launch in, what, four years or so. And then I think you're heading up the next expedition after the Clipper, perhaps. How are you going to get there? How are you going to do this? This is like a crazy idea. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you, Sid, when I was at Dartmouth in... in, uh, So I think the year was 1997, and NASA had a press release that actually came out of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I work now. And this press release had this, this was data coming back from the Galileo spacecraft, magnetometry data that indicated that there was a conductive layer within Europa that indicates a a salty subsurface ocean. I didn't really get into the the actual data of how the ocean was discovered, but uh, suffice to say that the Galileo spacecraft sent back this data and NASA had a press release showing the future of exploration of Europa. And there was this artist's rendering of a melt probe coming through the, the ice on Europa, reaching the ocean and exploring a hydrothermal vent on the seafloor of Europa. And the date back then, so this is 1997 again, the date for when that mission would be done was projected as 2009. So Mm. here I'm laughing, trying not to cry, but 2009 obviously came and went. No melt probe, uh, not even a a subsequent launch to go out and further explore Europa. But as you mentioned, we are on track to have the Europa Clipper mission get to the launch pad sometime in the early to mid-2020s. There are a lot of political and financial whims and wins that we have to respond to, but uh, With any luck, we'll get that mission to the launch pad in the not-too-distant future, and then it'll take a while to get out to Jupiter. And the Europa Clipper mission, so I'm a co-investigator on that mission on the dust analyzer. That's a mass spectrometer being led by Sasha Kempf out of uh, University of Colorado Boulder. And the Clipper mission will fly by Europa some 45 times, taking extraordinary data as it flies by. Imagery, spectroscopy, mass spectrometry, Ice penetrating radar data will be collected. And subsequent to that mission, as you mentioned, I'm helping to lead a mission that would hopefully get a lander down to the surface following on the Clipper mission. Now, the Europa lander is not approved. It's still in what we call pre-phase A. But there's a lot of excitement to get this mission done. There's a lot of excitement within the scientific community to get down to the surface of one of these ocean worlds and following on the clipper with a landed mission makes a lot of programmatic sense. And the public is incredibly enthusiastic about it. If anything, uh, when I've given public lectures, people are astonished that that we're not sending a, a lander right now. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, there's water there. That's... <laughs> That's the Holy Grail. Let's go get it. <laughs> right. And, uh, and it's important to mention also that as much as I love the search for life, as exciting as that prospect is, there's a tremendous amount of just beautiful oceanography, uh, a tremendous amount of beautiful chemistry and planetary science to be done. And here I like to make the comparison to our study of Venus and the greenhouse effect. And actually, James Lovelock, as I mentioned in the book, well, James Lovelock was out at JPL in the 1970s. James Lovelock, of course, wrote the book Gaia and is famous for his thinking about the interconnectivity between a planet and its biosphere. 
And so he was out at JPL during the time of the Viking landers that, that went down to the surface of Mars. And he started pondering why it is that Earth is habitable and Venus is not and Mars may be, but if it was habitable, it was likely habitable in the past. And that got Lovelock thinking about atmospheres and comparing the atmospheres of Venus, Earth, and Mars. And from that came this thinking about the runaway greenhouse effect on Venus and how that led to that world being inhospitable for uh, life as we know it. And so a lot of important planetary science comes out of looking at processes that exist not just on planet Earth, but also on these other worlds. And atmospheres are a great example of that. Once we go to the surface of a world like Europa and start to understand an alien ocean, we can begin to do what I like to call comparative oceanography. A mission to the surface of Europa is not just about searching for life. It's also about understanding oceans as a planetary process. So there's a lot of great science to be done with these types of missions. Wow. And I guess you have to be incredibly patient because of the timeframes that are involved. It's Congress that has to approve these budgets, I take it. That's right. And that's got, you know, whoever is there and different political philosophy. I know you've testified to Congress before. I mean, how do they think about this? The people that you've talked to, I mean, there's a couple of dimensions. One is, there's actually several. One is, these things are not cheap. And I'll ask you for an estimate if you know it for, mm -hmm. say, the and there's so many other demands on the budget that are extremely important, and those are valid. But then there's also all these other options that NASA, maybe other groups, come up with on what to do. Go back to the moon, do something on Mars. You know, there's this new Netflix series called Away, but uh, Man Trip to Mars uh, that people are looking at, which I started watching it, and it's you got to keep people interested. So there's a lot of danger that happens. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of competing interests, even within the solar system exploration side. And then there's just that whole category versus a lot of other things that are arguably more pressing needs. And you've been asked all those questions, <laughs> I'm sure. So, I mean, how are those conversations? Uh, how do you convince people about this? And what are you, what are you getting back? Uh, yeah, it is a, a great, great question, Sid. There are a lot of different layers to peel away in what you just framed. So let me see. To begin with, on the congressional side, on the purely political side, we have had tremendous support in the past. A congressman from Texas, John Culberson, had long been a champion for NASA. Uh, he's no longer in the House, but over the past decade, he really was a, an incredible force in increasing NASA's budget as a whole and the planetary science budget more specifically. And then within the planetary science budget, also focusing in on Europa specifically. And he really um, got captivated by the search for life on Europa when he visited JPL in the year 2004. And one of my dear friends and mentors, John Cassani, a brilliant engineer and project manager, was showing Congressman Culberson the Mars Exploration Rovers. I think they had already launched, or maybe it was during the landing period when Culberson was out here. And John Cassani uh, said, well, you know, if you think Mars is cool, just look at uh, this moon Europa where uh, we have good evidence that an ocean exists. And Culberson was already fascinated with the exploration of our own ocean. And this really brought together two of his passions, the search for life in space and understanding our ocean better. And so ever since that time, uh, he had been advocating for and, and working hard to increase the budget to uh, make this kind of exploration possible. Without him, it's been much harder. But one of the great things about NASA and one of the great things about this kind of exploration is that for the most part, it does get broad bipartisan support. It is captivating to the public. This is the kind of stuff 
that the taxpayers want NASA to do this kind of exploration, this search for life beyond Earth, the sending these robotic spacecraft to explore these worlds that might harbor life. That is exactly on point with what the taxpayer, the true stakeholder in NASA, expects of the administration. Now, as you mentioned, within NASA, it's kind of a zero-sum game because given a budget, then it gets partitioned out into human exploration and the science mission directorate and various mouths to feed on various scientific interests. And that is a tough nut to crack. There's um, so many wonderful questions that could and should be answered. Uh, There's a lot of wonderful astrophysics, a lot of wonderful heliophysics, a lot of wonderful earth science, and a lot of planets and planetary questions to address within the planetary science budget. But here's what I'll say when it comes to that sort of zero-sum game. For a long time, NASA's planetary science program and the exploration of our solar system has been a game for the physicists and geologists. It's been a realm where in order to partake in that exploration, you had to be a physicist or, or a geologist. Maybe if you're a chemist, you could also have a role to play. What these missions to search for life really do is open the doorway to a much broader scientific community. With a mission like landing on the surface of Europa, we need biologists, we need oceanographers, we need a much broader swath of the scientific community. We want to be much more inclusive in who gets to be a part of these missions with NASA. So our team with the Europa Lander is kind of trying to break that mold that NASA traditionally has, where it's a bunch of physicists and geologists. I want biologists and chemists engaged. Right. Which, uh, knowing how academia in general and science in general works, I think is a, probably a tough nut to crack mm-hmm. because there's loyalties and jealousies and academia, the knives come out pretty quickly. They do. I've um, got many uh, scars in my back and whippings. To, <laughs> to, uh... You have, for a long time, been exploring the oceans on Earth. And I briefly mentioned this James Cameron expedition where you're brought on as a scientist. You may have been getting your PhD or postdoc was around that time. Did that go to the trench? What is it called? The Mariana Trench. Mariana Trench. It went there? So Was that the first time that you had gone there? Right. So I've done a couple of different expeditions with James Cameron and National Geographic. And the first one was pretty sure it was 2003. It was somewhere in that time frame. Uh, and as you mentioned, I was in grad school at the time. And I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine, George Whitesides, who um, is a leader at Virgin Galactic now. And George at the time was working for a startup that was going to send robots to the moon. And he said, it turns out James Cameron is is working with us on this startup. And uh, he mentioned going out to the ocean to uh, explore hydrothermal vents and make an IMAX that compares those ecosystems with the prospect of life potentially existing within Europa. And he's looking for young scientists to talk about the search for life on Europa while sitting in a submersible at the bottom of the ocean. Are you interested? So I said, sure. And I went and had an interview at some place here in LA, and it was quite surreal. And when they asked me to join the expedition, honestly, I wasn't sure that that was a, a wise decision for me to make coming back to academia and all that. And at the time, I was studying chemistry and biology in a summer school. And I had this wonderful biology mentor named Ken Nielsen, who's a professor at USC now. And 
I was asking Ken for advice on, you know, is this the right decision to make? Is this wise? And he put his hand on my shoulder. We were out on Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles here. And he said, Kevin, if there's any damn chance in hell that you're going to get to go to the bottom of the ocean, you better take it. <laughs> and so, so I joined the expedition uh, and got to dive to the bottom of the ocean nine times. And it was just an absolutely mind-altering experience to get to see the deep ocean up close, to get to see these tube worms and zawarsid fish and bizarre mineralogical deposits that make up the hydrothermal vents. To see that with my own eyes was truly transformative. So how do you actually get there? Is that when you use those submersibles, the Russian ones? Or That's the- right. We, we use the Russian Mir submersibles. Yes. And we were on board the Russian research vessel Keldish, which is just a real crown jewel of oceanography. And the Mir submersibles, we actually had four submersibles, the two Mirs and then... Cameron also had these acrylic spheres. They were called the deep sea rovers, two submersibles that could only go down to a kilometer depth. But the beauty of them is that they were acrylic spheres around which were wrapped the various electronics and ballast systems needed to to explore the ocean. So I got to make dives in both. And basically you climb inside, they close the hatch, and then you just start descending. And you are in a standard atmosphere. So you don't have any scuba equipment on or anything like that. You're just breathing the atmosphere. And you're just in a very tiny, tiny space with one or two other people. If you're claustrophobic, it's not the it's not a good thing to do. Thankfully, I had actually grown up doing a lot of caving in Vermont and New Hampshire, and I've always been fine with tight spaces. So getting into these submersibles was wonderful. It's you know kind of like being a kid and then uh, making a fort out of a refrigerator box. That's you know kind of what it's like, yeah. except <laughs> you're, at, except the you're going the ocean. at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> and were you afraid? Yes and no. As I mentioned in the the sort of first chapter of the book where I uh, convey this story, having grown up in Vermont in the Green Mountain Valley, I have no fear of the mountains. I have a lot of respect for the mountains. I feel like I can can hear the mountains. I can listen to the trees. I, I know how to judge the sky and the clouds. And so, you know, I've got tons of great memories from friends at Dartmouth and, and my hometown of epics in the White Mountains and the Green Mountains and and all sorts of adventures and misadventures around. But, you know, there's always a sense of, I know how these mountains work and I know what to watch out for. Out at sea, I had none of that because, of course, I grew up in the landlocked state of Vermont. We would go out to the ocean to Cape Cod or once to Nantucket. But when I went out to sea with Cameron in 2003, it was a whole new learning experience to try and figure out how to read the skies, read the waves, read the ocean. And getting in those submersibles, I was still pretty green, but I got to know many of the Russian engineers quite well. And they showed me all the little contingency plans, the last of which was, okay, if everything else goes wrong, you lift up one of the tiny little seats inside the submersible, pull out this big wrench, and then loosen this nut and bolt, and that will mechanically drop some ballast, and the submersible will then become positively buoyant and start to rise up through the ocean, and you will then surface. Now, you'll probably pop out like a cork and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, jump yeah, for a little ways. So it's not going to be pretty, but you probably won't die. So I was certainly nervous and had my concerns, but, you know, I kicked the proverbial tires on the submersibles and the Russian engineers 
are nothing if not thorough and robust. You know, they always had a backup plan and they always choose reliability over fanciness. And, and so their systems always had a backup plan. It's interesting. It was a James Cameron financed trip. And I don't know if you got to know him at all. He's legendary director of the mega hit Titanic yeah. and uh, what else? Terminator and Aliens. And Abyss, uh, a great deep ocean movie. <laughs> Is that why he did this? Because he was researching for that movie or he just did because he just wanted to do it? <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a funny story because I'm not sure I have all the details. I do know Cameron quite well. He's an incredible human being, easily one of the most brilliant people I've worked with. And I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of brilliant people. One of the things that a lot of people don't appreciate is that he actually does a lot of the artwork that um, sets the, the foundation for his movies. And he obviously writes, directs, and does a lot of the various jobs on the movies. But he grew up in Canada, also landlocked, but um, had a fascination for the ocean and used to build little submersibles for mice and other critters in the lake nearby his home. And so Cameron is a um, diehard oceanographic explorer, and he's often said that if things had been a little bit different, he might have ended up in the sciences or at least in wow. the engineering fields that would have led him to be at an organization that is developing uh, deep ocean exploration tools and space exploration tools. Now, you know, things obviously worked out for him. And so, <laughs> so yeah, some of the most, the highest grossing films ever. That's right. So he can just finance things. Uh, but when it comes to the, the aliens of the deep IMAX movie that he made back in the early 2000s, that was, if I recall correctly, that was financed by Disney it was kind of one of these things, again, I think I've got this correct, but he had made Titanic and Disney or whom, Lightstorm or whomever it was wanted to make sure that they kept him on retainer. And so they just gave him a kind of a, a budget to work with to make whatever he wanted to make before going into production on Avatar. And so Jim took that opportunity to make an IMAX movie that was wonderful from the standpoint of exploration and science. So I got to be a part of that. And that also, frankly, fed into Avatar. A lot of the creatures that we saw at the bottom of the ocean, a lot of the bioluminescent creatures in particular, sparked his imagination on how to populate the biosphere of Pandora in Avatar. So at the bottom of the ocean, you see, as you alluded to already, some kind of unusual creatures and organisms. And they're not going to get any sun down there ever. So how are they surviving? Yeah, this is a great question that also ties back to Europa and the prospect for life on, on Europa. At the base of the food chain around the hydrothermal vents, the microbes are doing chemosynthesis. They are using the chemistry of the compounds that are coming out of the hydrothermal vents to then do that chemical synthesis, chemosynthesis, to get the business of life done, the, the growth, the metabolism, the reproduction. So the microbes are doing that. Now that's in contrast to the base of the food chain at the surface of the earth, where of course, for the most part, photosynthesis drives the food chain. Algae and plants use the energy from the sun to then grow, and then animals eat the plants and so on and so forth. So down at the hydrothermal vents, you've got chemosynthesis driving the microbial mats and the single-celled organisms. Some of the animals down there, the zoarcid fish and the crabs, etc., they eat and harvest some of those microbes, but those animals still need oxygen to breathe. They are animals like us, they need oxygen. And the oxygen that those animals are breathing is dissolved in the ocean water, even at those great depths. And that oxygen that's dissolved in the ocean water 
originates from our atmosphere and from the photosynthesis occurring on the surface of the earth. So the trees make the oxygen, the oxygen dissolves in the ocean. Some of that oxygen makes its way to the deepest depths and those crabs and fish around the hydrothermal vents then use some of that oxygen. So that then begs the question of on a world like Europa, where you've got a relatively thick ice shell through which sunlight almost certainly cannot penetrate, what are the prospects for life Mm -hmm. and in particular complex life? So I think that chemosynthetic life, microbial life, could well survive on Europa. There may well be hydrothermal vents on Europa and those vents could power microbes. Whether or not there's oxygen in Europa's ocean is a whole different question. And here's where things get kind of chemically interesting. The ice shell of Europa is constantly bombarded by energetic electrons and protons and ions that are trapped in Jupiter's magnetic field. And as those charged particles hit the icy surface of Europa, they convert some of the H2O, some of the water, into oxygen. And so we know from our studies of Europa's surface that there's oxygen in the surface ice made by that radiation processing. And so I think that if some of that oxygenated ice makes it into the ocean below, we might have the prospect of having enough oxygen in Europa's ocean so as to help power not just microbial life, but also larger multicellular life that would be the equivalent of animals uh, within Europa's ocean. That's a lot of speculation, but the fact is that oxygen does exist within the ice of, of Europa. So the ice is so thick that it insulates the water so that it doesn't freeze at some point. It stops the freezing in the same way that it might in a, in a lake in winter. Exactly. Exactly the same physics. Ice serves as a nice thermal blanket. Wow. You've been to Antarctica as well, haven't you? Uh, yes, a couple of times. Yeah. And the purpose there was specifically around the ice and exploring around ice because of the Europa or other connections? Or was there some other focus at that time? The two different times I was there were for two different reasons. The first time was back in 2005, if I remember correctly. And on that expedition, we went down to McMurdo Base, uh, which is part of the U.S. system, and then got helicoptered out to this region in the Transantarctic Mountains called Battleship Promontory. And there, a lot of that work was focused on understanding microbes out in the rocks of Antarctica and connecting that chemistry and geology to Mars. And we were actually using a, um, a spectrometer that my colleagues and I had developed for looking at life within the pore spaces of the sandstone rocks of this region called Battleship Promontory. And so that was just an amazing expedition where we were studying those microbes. More recently, just this past field season in 2019-2020, my colleagues at JPL and I went down to Casey Station through a partnership with the Australian Antarctic Division, just an incredible organization that was amazing to work with. And so we went down to Casey Station to study the sea ice around that region of Antarctica. And the way in which we were studying the sea ice is by deploying this robotic vehicle that our team has built called the Buoyant Rover for Under Ice Exploration. And if you Google that, or more simply put, Bruie, B-R-U-I-E, Uh, you'll see some of the videos of this vehicle. But basically, this is a rover that thinks that the ground is up. 
It's a buoyant rover that just rolls along the ice water interface as if the ice were the ground. And part of the logic and scientific beauty of that vehicle is that it allows us to very sensitively measure the chemistry and the physics and the biology that is occurring and changing within the sea ice. When you're in Antarctica, where do you sleep? At Casey Station, there's this place called the Red Barn, and it's a wonderful facility, and it's actually quite comfortable. It's um, this very sturdy structure, obviously, because it's got to withstand the winds and the storms that roll in and across Antarctica. And so you're in this very strong barn, and so we slept in there. When I was out at Battleship Promontory, we brought tents, and we slept out in tents for close to two weeks, I think it was. I had a special tent for you know, taking care of the, the biology business that we had to put off at a, a distance. We had to be very careful about not polluting or contaminating that, that pristine environment. And so on that expedition, we had to be very careful because we were camping out. And that was amazing. I was just in my element down there. And I remember calling back home. Back then, you know, you were lucky if you had an Iridium phone that, that could make a, a link back to the States. And of course, it was Antarctic summer. And so the temperatures were cold, but not that extreme. And I called back to my parents in Vermont. And it was winter in Vermont. And I told my dad, you know, the temperature was, I don't know, something like minus 10 Fahrenheit in Antarctica. And he uh, chimed in, well, it's minus 15 here in Vermont. So uh, consider yourself uh, lucky. <laughs> so. That's funny. <laughs> We're getting close to out of time. And there's a few other things I still want to ask you about. But maybe we'll do some quick things. In the field of space exploration and rocket technology, you already referred to uh, one or two things. But you have people like Richard Branson. Uh, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, that have companies or investing in companies. Do you interact with them? What do you think about their work? Because it's private enterprise trying to build, I'll say, superior rocket systems and maybe something else. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, so I don't, in my day-to-day, -day, work that closely with those organizations, but NASA and many of my colleagues work quite closely with them. And I think it's just fantastic. It's exactly the right direction that things need to be going. And it's important to remember, Sid, that the goal of NASA, the way in which NASA ultimately wants to spend its budget, is in truly pushing the frontier, daring the mighty things that are not eventually going to achieve a return on investment that, say, uh, a publicly traded company can do. So, you know, NASA's chartered with pushing the frontier. Anytime NASA develops something to a sufficient maturity that it can then be subcontracted off to the private sector, the commercial sector, that is a win. That's exactly the kind of, you know, the way I like to think of NASA is almost like a, a venture capital organization that helps seed innovation at the most extraordinary of levels. And so the success of SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbit, et cetera, you know, that's right in line with the earliest days of NASA and the Apollo missions. Think about uh, Lockheed Martin. Once upon a time, that was Lockheed and Martin Marietta. And, mm -hmm. you know, you had uh, Raytheon and all these other organizations. Northrop, back in the early days of Apollo, NASA was going to those companies and asking them to do some of the electronics and the developments that made the Apollo missions possible. SpaceX and these other commercial sectors are just a continuation of that partnership between NASA and the commercial sector. So right. that's really interesting. And that's a very interesting way to kind of frame it. 
in a way I think a lot of people understand and can appreciate. You know, there's an age-old debate in America, among some people in America, about science and religion. So let me ask you whether you believe in God. <laughs> well, you're just going to drop that one on me, Sid? <laughs> well, cut it out of the tape and no one will hear it. If you, if, no, I, if I, I, I love that. it. I love it. Just, uh, <laughs> um, so um, the short answer is that I'm in that realm of agnostic with an atheist predilection. Having said that, part of my own history with religion goes back to Catholicism and having a priest who was less than imaginative and as a, uh, a young child asking that priest about aliens and, and life elsewhere and where God lives and, and all of these things. Uh, and that priest said, you're not supposed to ask questions like that. So after that experience, I started to separate myself from uh, organized religion and realized that, if anything, organized religion was an imperfect representation of whatever it was that God, if God exists, wanted to communicate. And so for me, I find a lot of connectivity and sort of spiritual enlightenment in science and just exploring nature and using my curiosity to appreciate the beauty of the universe. And my desire to search for signs of life beyond Earth is in part motivated by that question. On the one hand, when it comes to extraterrestrial intelligence, boy, would I love to see what their religions are. Boy, would I love to understand what their philosophies are, what their evolutionary history is, what their art is, what their music is. Think about what an extraordinary conversation could it happen that would be. Microbes, we're not going to have that chance, but at least uh, were we to discover microbes beyond Earth, uh, it would not then be that extraordinary of a leap to think that intelligent life could, uh, could perhaps exist elsewhere, and then we could compare theological notes. Right. I mean, that's a very thoughtful response. I did spring that on you. <laughs> I think about that a lot as well, just for myself, but others. And I've asked people, I have a friend who is a survivor of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. and I've asked her that question. And she said, what else can I do but believe in God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's so powerful. I'll never forget her saying yeah. that. She's in her 90s now. Wow. Um, yeah. And I can see the spiritual side to kind of the explorations that you're doing. It's very spiritual. Yeah. Whether it's organized religion or not, it's almost beside the point. And whether it leads to a definitive answer about God or not, I don't know. But And one of the things, you know, Judaism is so beautiful in its embracement. Is that a word? <laughs> the, the way Embrace, in which, yeah. <laughs> the way in which Judaism embraces science and discovery and the pursuit of knowledge. I really um, value that in Judaism. Yeah, and asking questions is your little anecdote about, you know, you shouldn't ask questions like that is a classic because, you know, a long time ago when I was not quite an academic, someone in a job told me, you know, you're doing great at this job, but you ask too many questions. <laughs> and, and that was my last day on the job. Yeah. I realized, you know, good job. intuitively, <laughs> intuitively, that's not going to work for me. Yeah. As you well know, the questions you ask, the questions I ask are really, really different in scale and scope and everything else. But they're all about asking questions. Absolutely. That's the heart of the matter. So one final question for you, Kevin, it's a question I like to ask people in the SIDCast to wrap things up. It's about advice for other people, except it's not for other people. It's advice for yourself at the age of 21. So if you can magically go back, so you know we're into science, uh, science fiction realm here, so maybe we can do it. If you can magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old and you would see the 21-year-old Kevin Hand doing whatever you were doing 
and you were to lean over and say, if there's one thing you want to know, it's one thing you want to do or not do or think about, what would that bit of advice be to yourself at that time? Hmm. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, lots of different ways to answer that. Okay, many different ways to answer it, and some of which are sort of fluffier than other answers. Let me give a very specific answer, because this is actually mm-hmm. um, a specific answer that I give a fair number of students today. And I think it would have been useful to me. And that is, go into biology, go into the field of biology. Why do I say this? First and foremost, as I think we're seeing in the past few decades, and as evidenced by the the recent uh, Nobel Prize, uh, the, the wonderful Nobel Prize that Jennifer Doudna won for CRISPR in partnership with the um, French uh, female scientist whose, whose name escapes me right now. But um, right now is an incredible time for biology, the science of biology, making new discoveries, innovating. And you can do experiments that specifically advance an innovation that can help humankind. And if you're excited about the search for life elsewhere, you can also be a part of NASA by being a biologist, provided that NASA decides to pursue the search for life in the coming decades. And so as much as I love my background in primarily physics and astronomy, had I gone into biology when I was 21, I think I would have had a a lot of fun and had some exciting discoveries that would have been perhaps more instant gratification than than the long-term Sisyphean task of trying to get these missions through the gates uh, sociopolitically. And and so I think biology right now is is quite an exciting and rewarding field that has wonderful ramifications for uh, humanity as a whole, uh, COVID. We all are living uh, through that right now, and we need more biologists, and you can also be a part of NASA. Yeah. In fact, the woman you just mentioned, Jennifer Wadna. Yeah. Yeah. So she was just in the news the other day with her team inventing a new COVID test that'll give a result. Incredible. Higher reliability than anything available other than the one that takes 24 hours, anything that's short term in five minutes. It's incredible. Which is a total game changer. That's just something she's doing in her lab among many other things. Pretty amazing. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for spending time with uh, with me and our audience. It was great to try to understand a little bit more about your work and the implications of that work. It's an area that I don't know, didn't know anything about, but I feel like I could at least read a little bit more and understand it, but also appreciate the long haul of what you're doing. It's decades and decades of, uh, of work that'll go on, but hopefully, you know, we'll be able to uh, see the... Uh, results of the, um, it's the Clipper, right? The Europa Clipper. The Europa Clipper uh, mission and the Dragonfly mission that'll go to Titan. Yeah. And thank you, Sid, for the opportunity and great conversation. Had a lot of fun chatting with you and hope your uh, listeners enjoy. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.